Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into a unique and special edition of the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. This is the first time that I have done an on-site or a remote broadcast recording of the Intentional Encourager podcast. This gentleman to my right and to your left as you're watching this on YouTube is an American treasure. He is a hero. He is the oldest living Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. He fought in the Battle of of Iwo Jima in World War II, and he is a native West Virginian. He lives in our area, and it is a distinct honor. He's also had a, how many people could you be next to that's had a battleship named for them? (laughs) It's It's this gentleman. What a tremendous honor to have with me today, Herschel Woody Williams who joins me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Mr. Williams, what an honor to have you here today. Well, thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. Thank you, sir. I got to ask you, how have things been for you? I always ask my guests this around the pandemic. The last 14 months have been unusual. You've lived a long time. You're 97 years young. I'm not going to say old. You're 97 (laughs) years young. Yeah. Have you ever seen anything like this in your lifetime? No, no. Uh, I wasn't born until 1923, so the uh, 1819 flu epidemic was over, of course. But some of my family, we lost some of our family in that flu epidemic. So, but no, I have never seen anything like this. uh, And it was so restrictive, really, Mm -hmm. because uh, they kept saying, of course, that people in my age bracket were the most vulnerable people, <laughs> you know, because of age and other infirmities. So it's, it's really been a very restricted year, or at least from April on. Right. And many of the things that we had planned for, for that year had to be canceled, and many of them have now been moved up to this year. So this year is going to be extremely busy. Well, and again, you mentioned that you do a lot of traveling and speaking as well, too, yes, because you have. And again, folks, as if you were sitting in this room with me and Mr. Williams, he is remarkably young. I did not how young you look for 97. I mean, you, you're in amazing condition. Has traveling the last several years as you've done it, has do you feel like that's kept you young and, and kept you in better physical condition? I think that's part of it, yes. But <clears throat> jokingly said, I think the Marine Corps vaccinated me with some sort of a serum <laughs> that makes you want to do an exercise every day. A lot of guys run. Mm-hmm. I ran for years, but I was running on blacktop and my knees began to hurt because of that. so For the constant I, pounding you were putting on. Yeah. yeah. So I quit running and, and I developed on my own an exercise routine that I go through every morning, making sure that every joint in my body moves and my, all my muscles move in some kind of a direction. And I've done that for years. And I, I attribute my agility a lot to that. Mm-hmm. And most folk uh, look at me with a jaundice eye when I say this, but I had a boss back in uh, the 60s that had, was a, had been a colonel in World War II, and he was about 48 years old. I'm about 26 years old. <clears throat> and he was the most active person. He did... I had to travel with him wherever we went, and and uh, he was just running me to death. And one day I said to him, Mr. Bevel, where in the world do you get all your energy? Mm-hmm. You know, because we, we wouldn't get into one or two o'clock in the morning, and he's back at work at seven. Mm-hmm. And I'm dragging in nearly eight. You know? <laughs> but 
He said, well, my dad was an old medical doctor mm -hmm. in Virginia, and he was the only doctor in town. He delivered babies, he did operations, he did everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, when I was about 16 years old, he told me that if I wanted to really stay healthy and have energy, that I should drink vinegar and honey every morning. I, I tried to take apple cider vinegar when I had some acid reflux. I could not imagine well, <laughs> vinegar and honey. That would not be the drink of choice for me, Woody. That well, it isn't, but uh, most things that are good for you, that taste good, are not good for you. But uh, I developed my own recipe. Okay. Because I was having trouble, just like you, of just pure vinegar and honey. So I began... I worked up a recipe. My goodness, thank you. And I carry these cards with me because I get this question a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, this is young. And so, uh, but I've been- I love it. I, and I put honey in my tea every morning. Yeah. I, I put, I've done that for probably two years because honey is such a great natural. I had a friend of mine that raises bees tell me yeah. one time, he said, it's the only food that'll never spoil. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, yes, so I've been doing and we're going to, and I'll, I'll share this, I'll share this recipe <laughs> in the show notes with you as well. Okay. So that, so that folks out there that watch this podcast and listen to it, if you're listening to it, I'll go ahead and share it with you now. It is every morning, one and a half ounces of Bragg's apple cider with mother. And you have to make sure that it has That's that not, ingredient. process. Yes. Yeah. Two tablespoons of pure raw honey, and this is at the time we're recording this is honey season. We're right in that. So, so look for someone locally in your area, wherever you're watching this or listening, that is making raw honey, and you can get it right. that way. Yeah, and then mix in six ounces of warm water, and an option two tablespoons of pure maple syrup to improve taste. That's exactly right. and I do that. Yeah. I love it. I love it. My wife who who and we're 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 at our our local bank in their conference room, their community room. Um my wife who came who who is here this morning came in and and uh, she bought some pure maple syrup from Vermont. Oh. So we have some in our refrigerator. That's the best. Yeah. Well, she cooked with it the other night. And um, I could smell maple syrup all the next morning, all through our house. So improving taste. So again, if you want to have, and I'm going to try this recipe. I'm going to I'm going to do this recipe. And he, you've been drinking this faithfully yes, since the 1960s. Yeah. Do you feel like that helped you through? Because again, as we talked about with the pandemic, people in in the, your age group were especially vulnerable and things like that. Do you feel like that gave you an advantage? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think that gave me a, a some sort of an immunity situation uh, that made me less susceptible. Yeah, I do. Really do. As we record this, we had a gentleman in our area, Ernie West, who just oh, passed yeah. away. Right. Ernie West was also a Medal of Honor recipient for the Korean War, and Ernie West was 89 years old. Right. As you see men from Korea, from, from other battles, of course, you were in World War II, then Korea was shortly thereafter. As you see men who have, and, and this Medal of Honor, as you see it around his neck, Congress just, they, they don't just give these out to anybody. You, you have to exhibit certain traits. You have to be nominated for them. But as you see men and women that are that are recipients that are passing away. How does that make you feel? Do you feel there has to be the fraternity, so to speak, is shrinking? How how do you process that when you lose a, a brother or sister that's a Medal of Honor recipient like yourself? Well, that's a sad time. Absolutely, we we formed in 1947 a Medal of Honor Society. We called it. I don't know where the name society came from. Mm -hmm. But at that time, we had over 400 Medal of Honor recipients from Spanish-American War, World War I, and now we, World War II. And we formed in New York City. Mm -hmm. 
And the purpose of forming the society was actually to keep us together. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any other projects at the time. And keep in mind, too, there was not the technology advantages that we have today oh, where you no. can communicate with people over Zoom or cell phone, telephone, right. and things like, well, telephone, but the main communication lines were letter and, and telephone back at that That's time. That's right. Or telegram. And we started having conventions at that time every two years. But as time went on, we began losing so many in one year that the society officers, the people that we elect them every two years, they decided we ought to get go every year instead of every two years. So, well, and of course, we changed it to every year and we always have a memorial service to honor and pay tribute to those who we lost in that year. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a sad time, yet it is a time when deep respect is generated because every one of these individuals, and I feel the same way, this medal doesn't belong to me. And you will hear Medal of Honor recipients say that. I wear it for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Because if, if somebody else hadn't done something to make it possible for me to receive it, I would not be the wearer sure. of it, you know. Sure. So uh, uh, I didn't learn until after several years after uh, I received the medal from President Harry S. Truman back in those days that two Marines had sacrificed their lives that day protecting me while I was doing the job for which I had been trained by other Marines. Mm -hmm. And when I learned that, then it made it absolutely positive that I wear this medal in their honor, not mm -hmm. mine. You talk about the society that you formed back in 1947. Yes. As you were communicating with men and women from the Spanish-American War, that war was fought in 1898, if you, yes. you, you keep your history together. Then our country went about 20 years, and then we we entered into World War One from from 1914 to 1918. As you met people from those other wars, what was there a common theme that rang between those that had fought before you? I think there was, but but it was more camaraderie than talking about our achievements. We didn't, we didn't talk, we didn't sit around talking with each other. Well, I you weren't this. comparing weaponry and That's, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we had this, we do had this weapon we used. You, you guys had other, you know, other yeah, weapons. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, but all of them, well, I say all of them, the majority of them were very humble, just ordinary individuals. And most of them think they didn't do anything special. Mm-hmm. They just were doing the thing for what they were trained, and that was their job, and that's what they did. I've had two men on this podcast that, that were veterans of Iraqi freedom. Yes. They talk about the, the and they're both, they were both immigrants from Eastern Europe. Oh. Who, served, who, who joined the Marine Corps, as you did. Yes. Served in, in war. And I was talking to one, and he was talking about hitting an IED and suffering a traumatic brain injury and things like that. When you think about the condition that you're in today, and 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 how war was back then, because they they you know let's let's be honest, they didn't have the, the medical technology in that's place true. in the battlefield. That's true. That that you know that the, the hospitals in that in, in your time. Were, were very rudimentary compared to the, the medical, the triaging facilities that they have in the battlefield today. Yeah, we just called them first aid stations. Correct, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so how when you think about what you survived and, and, and what you overcame as you fought in World War II, how, how do you process this, how you're feeling today at 97? How do you process, or do you ever process what might have been had you suffered a traumatic injury like that in war? 
No, I don't guess I ever have, but as a veterans counselor, I started I started working with veterans as a veterans counselor for the VA in 1946. And most of the World War II guys had come home, you know, September the war was over. What did, most, let me, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what did you see when guys were coming home from war as you were counseling them? Well, there was no treatment. The only... The only medical service that was available to the World War II guy in 1945-46 was a public health service. Uh, when, I, when I was contacted about working with the Veterans Administration, which has now changed, but at that time, we only had one Veterans Administration unit in the whole state, and it was clear in Huntington, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. I had never heard of the VA, and most of us had never heard of anything about the Veterans Administration. Uh, it was formed in 1932, so it didn't even exist for World War I guys, mm -hmm. you know. So even at that time, there was no service basically available, and it wasn't until late 1946 that they began establishing places in the state, around the state, where people could go and get get their GI Bill and, sure. and their compensation and that type thing uh, that had never been available before. So the, it was tough times and treatment, doctors were very scarce. Mm -hmm. And to have the technology that we have today, it's like being on the moon be before we got on the moon, mm -hmm. you know. We used we used to say the man in the moon. <laughs> yeah. Well, we never dreamed that there would be a man there someday. Well, and and you now have lived long enough to see us have a rover on Mars. That's right. Now, and and we're we're doing things around the planet of Mars. I mean, it's in, it's incredible. It is. When you think about veterans care, and 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 I want to go here for just a minute. Yeah. I have always believed that our highest priority as, as, as our country should be to take care of our men and women Absolutely. who have served this country. Absolutely. There, there should never be an, an issue where, where a veteran needs something that it isn't readily available for them. They should receive the highest level of health care. Right. They should receive without cost to them. But then I, but then I see, you know, and, and they're great organizations like Wounded Warrior and, and and all these other organizations that are that are standing in the gap. Why do you think it is, and not to be political, but why do you think it is that our country has failed to adequately give our veterans the care and 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 the necessities that they need? Well, I think, uh, and I've been asked this question a whole lot, particularly by young people, when I've been speaking to a group. Well, I appreciate that because I'm pushing 50, and I appreciate you considering <laughs> me a young person. The gray on my, the gray in my beard and the achiness, which after I try this, I probably won't have achy joints after I drink this. So, <laughs> But I would get a question, what's it like to be in combat? Well, there is really no adequate explanation that will describe the horror of combat. Now we have IEDs today and have had since uh, Iraq. Right. But we had the landmines. And the, the landmines, the enemies would place those things so many different places. And, and, uh, and I think it was more prevalent during the Vietnam War mm -hmm. than it was even in World War II. But we had them, and we had them even on Iwo Jima, we had landmines. You can't see them. We finally developed a system, if you could get to it, that would detect a mine, buried mine. But here's a guy just standing up with a detector in his hand, which makes a very good target. So they didn't do a whole lot of searching. And we had people who stepped on mines, uh, and. And well, you just talked about the sacrifice. You mentioned a few moments ago the sacrifice of people that went before you. Yeah. 
And, and so somebody that was there detecting those mines, if they were, as you, as you, I, I'll, I would refer to as a sitting duck. Basically. That's exactly right. You yeah. know, you're trying to detect these landmines and the enemy sees you from the waist up. You're a sitting duck. You are. Yeah. And so that it just speaks to the sacrifice yeah. that you talked about. And, and again, I don't, I had a friend of mine comment. He was watching a World War II documentary. And I, and I commented back to him on Facebook. I said, wait till you hear the story, your story from World War II. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. And and he made the comment that the famous line, I, I believe it was General Patton or MacArthur, one that said war is hell. Right. And, and, and you just spoke to the combat. Let's talk now about your story. Let's tell your story. You grew up in this area, correct? Yeah. I'd like to do that. Yes, but, but I, want, I want to back up just a moment because once once the veteran population began to be recognized and benefits began to be established for them uh, through the Congress, we've done a pretty good job in recognizing the service of veterans. You know, we have veterans memorials and monuments in every, I don't know whether there's a a large city or any city that doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. But the folk that have really been forgotten are the families that lost a loved one in our armed forces. Back at, right after World War II, when the army or military, whatever branch, a war department we had back in then before the defense department, when they sent out the telegram to tell them that their loved one had been lost, that severed their relationship. There was no contact afterwards, nothing. So those individuals had to come to the VA because that was the only source of information and benefit. They were literally left to pick up the pieces. That's correct? exactly yeah. right. So we forgot those people. Hmm. We really did, uh, particularly the relatives of those, like cousins and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas. There was no contact by the Army or any branch of the service with them at the time this happened. They dealt strictly with the next of kin, whoever that was. And so once that was over, they were done. So now it depended on the VA to pick up the ball and run with it. And of course, as an interviewer, veterans counselor, I talked to a tremendous number of those people right after World War II, because nothing was done during World War II. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. And so uh, I, I got to ask you this, please forgive me for, for sure. cutting in you, but I, I'm trying to put myself in into your shoes as a, a veterans counselor. And you're talking about families that were basically here's the telegram yeah i'm so sorry for your loss yeah you know the we've seen the 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 scenes in the movies where someone from the war department comes hands right. them the telegram sorry for your loss you know takes the cap off and then walks away and again they're left to, to pick up the pieces did you ever have and some people in and and someone you know well red dawson who was in the We Are Marshall movie, uh, he survived. He, he didn't make the Marshall plane crash. He was driving a car. Right. Talking about survivor's guilt. As you were counseling some of these families, did you ever have survivor's guilt that you came back and many of the men you served with did many not? Times. Many, many times. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I have said, back far as I can remember, why me? Why did I survive? Why did the things happen to me that didn't happen to the other guy? Uh, you know, I, th I think of the two Marines that sacrificed their life on February the 23rd, 1945. How come they lost their life and I didn't? I don't have the answer to those questions, but it's always bothered me, really has. Mm -hmm. And when I would be talking to a mother and a father who lost a son, that that thought would come, you know, why me? Why did I, why am I here and they're not, you know? So in 
2013 in West Virginia, the first state in the union, uh, I suggested to a group we were meeting with uh, that we do something to recognize the families of all those thousands of people that we have on our Veterans Memorial. Mm -hmm. Nothing had ever been done with the families. Mm -hmm. And everybody thought that was a good idea. We, sh we should do that. So they said, you know, sometimes when you make a suggestion, you get the job to do it. And that's what <laughs> happened. You know? So yes. they said, well, what would you want to do? And come up with something. So I did. And, and on October the 2nd, 2013, we erected the very first Gold Star Family honor tribute to those families that had lost a loved one. And we really thought we were done. We did it for West Virginia. I wasn't concerned about Nevada or Washington or anybody else. But if it weren't for the computer, it probably would have never gotten off ground. Mm -hmm. But because of the computer, a son who lost his father in Vietnam Mm -hmm. saw it, and he lived in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. the one of the most historical yes. places of our nation. And he said, well, we we got to have one of these here. So he went, formed a committee and raised money, and that was the number two. And here again, far as we were concerned, we're done, and he's done, but it continued to multiply. And today we have Volkswagen Family Memorial Monuments, or the communities do, in every, all 50 states. Wow. West Virginia has seven communities already that have one of these Volkswagen Family Memorial Monuments, six more on the books. And next week I go to Texas and dedicate two in wow. Texas and eventually Texas always bigger and better. They'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. Yes, they will. Just, yeah, to well, my Texas friends there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but eventually they'll they'll have more than anybody else because they're they are larger and and it's a very patriotic, military oriented state. Yes, you know, but it it is something that that's drawing these families together for the first time in history. They don't even know who each other are. There's no contact between them. And now here's this memorial that represents their loved one. And yeah. it is a very, every one of them are different, yet they're very emotional. And it's, I've been surprised, I guess. Or, well, it's amazing, Woody, because the World War II memorial was one of the last to get done. The Vietnam Memorial got done first. Yeah. And, you know, and, and really the greatest generation was the forgotten generation. That's right, exactly. Right. And so, and, and again, I, I want to say this to every veteran that's watching, thank you for your service. Whether you served in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraqi Freedom, whatever war that you fought in, thank you for your service from the Intentional Encourager podcast because I don't think we do a good enough job we don't. In our country, recognizing our veterans and thanking them for their service. You're, you're right. Absolutely right. I'd be remiss in the time that we have left if we didn't tell your story. You grew up here in West Virginia. Did yes. you, know, you grew up in this area. And where we are is we're in Milton, West Virginia. I live in a little town called Barbersville, West Virginia, which is a neighboring town. And so this area, we're outside of Huntington, West Virginia, which is where Marshall University is. I went to to Marshall University, and I've said that a minute, many a time on the on the podcast. I have I have said that I, I went proudly went to Marshall University, but you grew up here in this area. Take me through your life story and and how we got okay. you got from there to here. Well, I need to correct you because I I did not grow up in this area. Okay, I came to Huntington in 1957. I moved down here in '57. Okay, at that time, it feels like you've always been a part of this <laughs> yeah, community, it's though. Right. Yeah, but at that time, population of of Huntington was eighty-five thousand people. It was. We had a lot of manufacturing plants and yeah, things like that. Yeah. We were we were trans. Huntington is on the Ohio River, and so it, it was it was. Um, for those that don't know, it was a river port 
founded by Collis P. Huntington, who was a railroad magnet. He wanted a river port to to connect with rail. So we've always had river and rail in our area. Exactly. So what brought you to Huntington? Well, I was born, let me go back up. I was born and raised at a little town called Quiet Dell, West Virginia, which is about seven and a half miles east of Fairmont, West Virginia. I know right where Quiet Dell is. Okay. Now there are two Quiet Dells. Mm-hmm. There's one in Harrison County, mm-hmm. and it's right on the interstate. Yep. And the other one's in Marion County, which is just on a country road between Fairmont and Grafton. Yeah. So that's where I grew up, and I grew up on a dairy farm. My my dad started a dairy farm when I was just a toddler, and uh, so I, I stayed on dairy farm until I was 16 years old. Yeah. So that was my life, really. And you saw the Great Depression. You were a child during the Great Depression, correct? Yes, I was born 23, but everybody had were practically in the same boat even before the Depression in 29. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have it, we had to make it. Because mm-hmm. There were no stores. You could no country store or store on the corner to go buy stuff. And we didn't have any money anyway. And it was a trip for you got you and your family to either go to Fairmont or Grand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the dairy farm, we delivered milk and butter and eggs and chickens and whatever to Fairmont every morning, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how we made our living. So in uh, 1946, when I went to work for the Veterans Administration, I had to come to Huntington to take my training. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know where Huntington was. I'd never heard tell of it, you know. <clears throat> and uh, once I got trained, once they trained me for about three months, then they sent me back out to the field, and I got stationed in my hometown of Fairmont mm-hmm. and stayed there until 1948. But uh, <clears throat> uh, the reason I came to, to Huntington I was working actually in Clarksburg at that time. Uh, we had an office there, and I was in charge of that office, but the boss here in Huntington of my section, uh, his assistant retired, so he selected me to replace him, and when he did that, I had to move to Huntington. Mm-hmm. So, so in 1957, I came here. That's how you came here. Do you remember getting, at that time, how would you have been drafted to go to war. You were born in, in 23. Yes. So when the war started in 1941, you were 18, 18 years old. By, by that time, soon to be 19, because the war started in, in late December yeah. of 1941 after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Right. Did you volunteer? Did you enlist or, did, or were, you, were you drafted into to the military? No, I had, uh, I had two brothers one next to me and then the next one up, uh, they were drafted in early 1942. And of course, the Army was the only group uh, military that was drafting at that time. Mm-hmm. The Marine Corps and the Navy and Army Air Corps were still volunteers. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you had to go in the Army in order to get into the Army Air Corps. Mm-hmm. But uh, I attempted to enlist, wanted to enlist, when I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And my dad died when I was 11. Oh, wow. Mom wouldn't sign my paper. Mm-hmm. And you had to have parent consent. Then one month after my 18th birthday, I wanted to be a Marine. Now, why I wanted to be a Marine is, I don't know. <laughs> it's a way out yonder someplace. The only thing I've ever been able to associate it with is I like the Marine uniform better than I like the Army uniform. So I said, well, I want to look like that instead of like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, said, I don't have any, well, there were no military people around us and we didn't have any, any military. Real recruiters at that time really were not as prevalent as they, no, as they no, are today. No, You had to go find them. They weren't looking for you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> but the first time I tried to go in, they turned me down because I was too short. The Marine Corps had a height requirement of five, eight, or better. I'm five, six. Mm-hmm. So when I gave the 
recruiter my paper that I filled out. He said, I can't take you. And quite naturally, I said, why? And he said, you're too short. Mm -hmm. But he had turned down a lot of individuals that were too short. You know? mm -hmm. And then in early 43, the uh, Marine Corps, we'd already began getting casualties, both in Europe and the Pacific. Water Canal had already happened, mm -hmm. and we lost a tremendous number of Marines in Water Canal. So we were already getting casualty notices, and <clears throat> part of the Marine Corps realizing if they keep this height requirement, there's going to be a limit of people. So they lowered it, and then they could take shorter people. And actually, he came to the farm and looked me up. And I lived seven miles out of town. But uh, he came and looked me up and said, you still want to go to Marine Corps? And I said, yeah. So I uh, went back to the same place and filled out another piece of paper and off I went. Yeah. Did you think this was early 43? Yes. Did you have any idea the trajectory that your military career would take? No. Or what, what, what were you doing when you enlisted? Were you just... Did they did they put men in in waiting, so to speak, to send them off to battle? Yes. Well, to send them, you had a waiting period even to get in. There were so many people wanting to get in the Marine Corps that they didn't have all the drill instructors that they needed. They didn't have housing for these people. So I, I actually was qualified in February, but I didn't go until May. I had to wow. wait that long before they could take me. Yeah, and uh, I should have gone to the boot camp on the East Coast, but because there were getting so many volunteers there, they began shipping we East Coast guys to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And I never dreamed I would even leave the United States to do anything. I thought, I thought I'm going in to protect my country and my freedom so that nobody can take that away from us. Wow. And I didn't know until I got into boot camp that we were fighting in the Pacific, and that's eventually where we're going to end up. So how did that happen? How did it end up that you ended up in the Pacific? Well, uh, of course, after finished boot camp, then they began training us for other uh, specialties, if you would. But the main specialty was a rifleman. Everybody in the Marine Corps got to become a rifleman. And so they put us into combat-type training in California, and uh, that lasted from uh, about June until August, and then that's when we learned we were going to ship out on a ship to the Pacific. We didn't know where we were going. Uh, and none of us had ever been on a ship before, of course, but uh, they shipped us out to the Pacific and. Uh, to an area where they were dispersing Marines to fill in the slots where other Marines had been wounded or killed. Mm -hmm. So you didn't know where you were going to go until they said, you know, got a group together and said, well, you're going to this island. And so uh, the, I went to Guadalcanal as a, uh, and it had been secured. They took it in 42. So it, this is late 43, so they'd already built roads and buildings and everything and the airports and, you know. So that's where we ended up to do additional training to learn how to fight in a jungle. I'd never seen a jungle. You hadn't you know, been out of Marion County. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I'd been in a briar patch. But well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the closest way. Yeah, there yeah, I remember growing up, I was taking my son one day where I grew up, and I said, we used to play in those weeds back in the, you know, back. Right. And, and he was like, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Take me to the day that changed your life, the Battle of Iwo Jima, where, where, you want, where you were awarded the Medal of Honor. You mentioned and you talk about, what do you see? What I, what I noticed, 70 seven years later, the deep respect that you have for the two men, the deep respect, and, and for all the men that you serve with. Yes. I noticed when you were talking about that, the deep respect that you had for those men. 
take me through that day that, that literally changed your life. Absolutely. Well, when we finally got ashore, we tried to go in the first day, but the Marines were pinned to the beach and there was no room for us to land. They, they couldn't get off the beach because they had them pinned down there with artillery and, and uh, mortars. And this was the Japanese Army, correct? Yes, yeah. So finally, by the uh, second day, they'd been able to break through the Japanese defense line and move out, move forward. So that gave us room to get in, and so we went in on the second day. <clears throat> and when we when we got ashore, our commanding officer uh, uh, got a few of us together, uh, people that had a little bit of rank or was in charge of other people. And when I hit the beach, or when we landed at the beach, I had six Marines in my little special weapons unit where we'd been trained to be an operator of a flamethrower and a demolition specialist. So we could either blow something up or burn something up uh, in addition to being a rifleman. Mm -hmm. And you're a rifleman full time. When you're not doing something else, you've got to be a rifleman. So he told us that our objective was to take the pillboxes. Today they call them bunkers, mm -hmm. but in those days they were pillboxes, and they were reinforced concrete pillboxes. They'd put a lot of metal through these uh, through this concrete, so if a bomb hit it or a piece of artillery hit it. It, it didn't do a whole lot of damage to it because it was so reinforced with iron bars. Uh, Which is a technological feat in of itself because when the Marines landed, and, and again, I'm trying to, to yeah. picture this. When the Marines landed on the beach at Iwo Jima, there were men that had to work quickly to get these bunkers set up to be able to, to have a defense point. Is that correct? No, they were already built when we got there. Okay. Oh, yeah. He built, um, I've seen fakers, uh, he had 800 of these pillboxes on Iwo Jima. Oh, wow. Big, little, different sizes, maybe a one-man pillbox. But he's, he's in that position and protected. So, and you're, so you're, your commanding officer was telling you guys, hey, look, get, in, get into these pillboxes as quickly as you can, get, get these reinforced so that we can, because they knew they were pinned in already, correct? Yeah, but the Japanese is in the pillbox. Okay. The Japanese is in the pillbox, and they are protected except for a slot in the front of the pillbox, put across the front of it, where they could stick their weapons out, and they had a big field of fire out here because they could just fire in almost every direction except back, and now we're, we're trying to approach that pillbox head on. And every time we would jump up and run from one position to another, we'd lose Marines because naturally they could see us. So going across the first airfield, there was no protection on the airfield. And we lost a tremendous number of Marines just getting across the airfield because they could see us and they could mortar us and they had machine guns set up to protect the airfield. So once we got across, then our objective was to, to eliminate the enemy within those pillboxes. And every time we would get up and move forward, we'd lose Marines. My uh, commanding officer had lost all of his officers except two. Uh, they were either wounded or killed. Most of our squad leaders were gone because they're the front guy. They're the first guy. And <clears throat> so uh, late in the uh, morning, he, he withdrew us, and uh, <clears throat> we withdrew back to the edge of the airfield, and he found a great big bomb crater and got us all located, uh, the people that had some, some grade. I was, a, I was a corporal, but I was acting sergeant. Well, that made me eligible to go to the meetings, and he called for his NCOs to all gather in this hole with these last two officers. And uh, trying to figure out what we're going to do, we're we're losing Marines and we're not gaining anything. Literally, by the moment you're losing men. That's exactly right. And the the uh, six Marines that I'd had with in my unit, 
I had placed them with other units, and they were gone. So I'm the only flamethrower guy left. And uh, the only reason I'm left is I'm back in headquarters company, uh, making up, filling flamethrowers and demolition charges and all that stuff in the event they need them. Figuring it out as you go, basically. Yeah. 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 And uh, so in that meeting, we're all down below ground level, so grazing fire can't hit us. Mm -hmm. And he uh, asked me if I thought I could do anything with Frankel, because we were making no progress just getting up and trying to move forward. And uh, I had no idea what I said. Some of the Marines later, when we got back to Guam, uh, somebody interviewed them, and they said, what I said was, I'll try. Now, whether I said that or not, I have no idea. But anyway, he told me to uh, pick four Marines and uh, see if I could do something about the pillboxers. And I selected two Marines, actually out of my own squad that I'd been in, and uh, before I got in this special unit. And then I picked these other two Marines. I didn't know who they were. I'd never seen them before. And we were so disorganized, it didn't make any difference what outfit you belonged to. You were just a Marine, period. Right. And I just picked those two guys and gave them their assignments. Uh, and they're supposed to shoot at whatever pillbox I want to select to try to get flame inside. They're to shoot at that aperture, that hole, keep the Japanese from being able to fire at me. And <clears throat> so uh, I began working. And uh, uh, the first pillbox that I tried to get to, I'm crawling. Uh, you've got three metal tanks hanging on your back that weigh 70 pounds. And so you don't just stand up and move forward. You, you crawl most of the time. And then when you fire it, you're using gasoline and diesel fuel, which gives off a great big black smoke. Well, the minute you do that, that's when they center in on the mortars and, and uh, artillery, if they can. So uh, I got close to this pillbox, but, but he was shooting at me with a machine gun. And uh, I could see, apparently, that this is not a good idea. I got to do something else. So I moved off to the side of the uh, pillbox, trying to get out of his line of fire. And I saw this little smoke curling up out of the top of the pillbox. And I thought, well, there's got to be an opening up there if smoke's come out. So I crawled around the pillbox, and they had piled sand on top of the pillboxes so that if a mortar hit it or a piece of artillery hit it, it wouldn't reach the pillbox. They had some form of... of of, of insulation above. Yeah, yeah. Now, a bomb from an airplane, that, that different story. Right. You know. But uh, I crawled around, crawled up on top of the pillbox, and here's this pipe sticking up there. That they, they lived in those things. Some of them were sealed, so they couldn't get even get out. And they cooked in there, charcoal-type stuff. And, of course, the smoke I saw was coming from weapons, mm -hmm. as they would fire, that blue smoke was coming out of machine guns and, and rifle. And uh, so I put my flame down that pipe, and of course, that eliminated all the enemy within there. Because the, it burns about 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit, and just jerks all the oxygen out of the air. It's a great big orange ball, mm -hmm. so it annihilates immediately, you know. So I just kept kept knocking out pillboxes. I finally eliminated seven of them, or the enemy within seven of them. And that's why I was recommended for the Medal of Honor. Wow. You're wearing a pin on your lapel, and, and we'll, our, our camera has moved slightly. I want to point out this lapel pin, yes. this, this pin right here. Right. My wife told me, she said, you have to have him tell the flag story. And so I want you, if you wouldn't mind, to tell the story, the flag story, 
that you told. I, I don't. She told me a little bit about it. She wouldn't tell me everything. She <laughs> said, "You got to hear it from Woody." Yeah. Would you please tell the flag story? Yeah. We were right at the uh, at the edge of the first airfield. This is on the twenty third of February, and. <clears throat> We're right at the edge of the first airfield, waiting for the order to go across the airfield. And I am facing away from Mount Suribachi. It's to my back. And uh, all of a sudden, the Marines around me began yelling something about a flag, and some of them got up, and they were standing there firing their weapons into the air. And I couldn't figure out really what was going on. So, and they're all looking back toward Mount Suribachi. So I get up and look back, and here's Old Glory, uh, the second flag. The first one was only a three by five. Next one was four by six. And Mount Suribachi is about a thousand yards from where we were. And here's Old Glory flying on top of Mount Suribachi, and it's standing straight out. There was a wind that day, and it was standing straight out, you know. And uh, we had never done that before in a combat situation in the Marine Corps. We always waited until we secured the island. We took charge. Then we put up a flagpole and put a flag on it. And that's the way we'd always done it. But we had never erected Old Glory prior to securing the island. And now we're only five days in on Iwo Jima, and Old Glory's fine. So I, did, I started doing the same thing these other guys were doing, firing my weapon into the air. It was a kind of a celebration type thing, and it was a spirit lifter. It really was. It, I have said the Marines did a terrific job in taking out Suribachi, but the the ultimate thing that drew all the attention to Sarabachi was Old Glory. Because you could see that thing from all over the island. Wow. Amazing. So that's my flag story. Well, and, and it reminds me of after 9-11, the firefighters in New York City right. raising the flag that had been at, atop the World Trade Center. Right. And what that tells me is what you just said about those two defining moments in American history, some 56 years apart. Of course, that September 11, 2001, 57 years apart, is that in the midst of turmoil, the flag is still going to stand. Absolutely. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of battle, because on September 11th, the enemy came to us. That's right. We, we weren't on enemy soil. The enemy was on our soil and it attacked us on our soil. When you think about that moment, now 77 years later, what does the flag represent to you 77 years? As you knew what the flag represented to Woody Williams, the the 21-year-old Woody Williams. What does the flag represent to 97-year-old Woody Williams? Well, it is the only, to me, it is the only symbol in our country to which all people can gather around. With anything else, there's going to be different opinions, but the flag, there is only one opinion. It stands for America. Wow, that is so powerful. You, you, you're, you're awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. You come to Huntington in 1957. I want to tell, very quickly, I want to tell the rest of your, your story. All right. Because most people, most people know you for that singular moment, but you've had a, a lifetime of experience oh and, and, and a lot of other things. And, and we're proud of you as a West Virginian because of the other things that you represent, not just the Medal of Honor, but the, the other things. As you think about your life, what what are some great accomplishments? What are things that you're most proud of in your life besides the Medal of Honor? Well, 
I have been so blessed and honored by my state. To imagine prior to prior to a ship being dedicated to me with, that's going to carry my name on the seven seas, I would have never dreamed that is a possibility for a little hillbilly West Virginia, you know. And of course, I didn't do a thing to accomplish that. Others made that possible. Another Marine by the name of Ronald Robleski lived in Huntington. He, now it was 19 years before the ship was designated, but he worked at it for 19 years to convince people that I should have a ship with my name on it. Wow. And, and even yet today, when I get on the internet and I see where that ship is, and it's up near Greece and up near Africa, and I think, let's think sailing up there, not sailing anymore, but moving up there, back and forth, protecting our freedom, but also giving other people uh, a security that they've never had before. It's just almost unimaginable. It's really difficult for me to comprehend. What would you say to those men and women? If, if, we were, if we were able to directly pipe into the USS Herschel Woody Williams, what would you say to those men and women on that ship? Well, what I said to them when we dedicated it on March the 7th, a couple years ago, that they are the epitome of protection for America. Wow. They are the epitome. They are there and if necessary, would risk their life every day for us. That takes a tremendous amount of commitment. And when you mention their families, yeah. they're, they're gone for six months. Six, six months. Yeah. yeah. With, with, very, very little communication. That's right. With their families. Yeah. And it, and as as well outfitted as those ships are, there's still only certain times that they can communicate with their families over the over video calls and things like right. that. Yeah. So, uh, in, in the last moment we have, and I, you have been so gracious with your time, Woody. I want to give you the opportunity to look toward that camera. This podcast is the Intentional Encourager podcast. We have gone through a lot in the last 14 months. We, we started our conversation talking about the pandemic. Do you have a word of intentional encouragement for people that would be listening to this today? Well, I certainly don't know the answer to the virus. Uh, that's not within my capacity. But if we, as a, as a citizen of this country, if we don't participate in this vaccination program to where the majority of us get this vaccination so that we can get rid of it and control it, we're going to stay in trouble. So I would encourage everyone to get the vaccination. If you have doubt, check it out. There's just all sorts of information available that I believe will convince you that it's the best thing to do just to protect yourself and your family. Don't think just of yourself because if you get it, then there's always a possibility you're going to pass it on to somebody else. Sure. So think of others and please take advantage of being vaccinated so we can get this thing behind us and get back to some normalcy in our American life. Well, I want to say on behalf of this audience, thank you again for your service. Um, it's not often you get to sit in the presence of an American hero. It's not often that we get a chance to have an American hero next to us. And his message 
is so true. Think of others. That's the thing that I'm going to think about from this conversation. Think of others. Is to think of others because, again, you talked about men that you served with that aren't here to tell the story that you were that you graciously told our audience. And so, Woody, thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. And what an honor it is to have you on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Well, Brian, thank you for what you're doing because this is a way that we can get the word out. And I couldn't do it any other way. So thank you. This has been wonderful. I mean, to have your first live, you know, in-person podcast be with this great man. Thank you for joining me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Thank you. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.